0: You may open your Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I gave you a number of chapters yesterday afternoon in preparatory reading. I hope that you enjoyed the ones you selected in light of our theme for today. I gave you 1 Kings 18 about Elijah the prophet and the prophets of Baal. It was 950 to 1. But where would you put your money? On the man of God. Was he a comfortable man to be around? He was a wild man, Elijah was. But he was the first, he was the predecessor of our John the Baptist. In 2 Kings chapter 1, you were able to read about Elijah again and how comforting he was to a king that was on his deathbed. I hope you read it. How comforting he was to men who wanted to tell the man of God that he had to obey them. He burned up a crowd of 50, and then burned up another crowd of 50, and the third captain of his 50 decided to get down on his knees and beg the man of God for mercy in 2 Kings 1. I gave you Jeremiah 23, which is a chapter of God warning his pastors. I gave you Ezekiel 13, which is Ezekiel's version of the same thing. I gave you Matthew 22, where the Lord Jesus Christ shut down the religious leaders of his day. Matthew 23, where he called them all sort of names because of their heresies and their hypocrisies. Right. I gave you 1 Timothy 1, where the apostle wrote his first chapter to another minister and where he describes the preaching of other men to be nothing but vain jangling. I gave you 2 Timothy chapter 4, our apostle's last chapter, where he tells us that Demas, one of the ministers, had forsaken him, having loved this present world. Paul wasn't afraid to describe the souls of men because the souls of men are visible by their lives. Mm -hmm. 2 Timothy chapter 4, also, the apostle Paul condemned Alexander the coppersmith as having done him great harm and that Timothy should beware of him as well. He didn't ask Timothy to pray for Alexander the coppersmith because Paul didn't care about Alexander the coppersmith, except that he and Timothy be delivered from him. I gave you Titus chapter one, where the apostle Paul, in giving ministerial directions to Titus, slurred a whole nation because of their ethnicity, because they were all losers. And it shows the character from beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible of God's ministers. And so I wanna go over some of those things today. This is not my favorite sermon. If you ask me a year from now, where would you rank today? If, if you even ask me today, I rank it rather lowly. But it's something I need to teach because I need to teach you the whole counsel of God. Right. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and verse 6, I'd like to read the Apostle Paul defending himself against other preachers at Corinth who were envious of his authority his power, and his position as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so Paul had to defend himself. Whenever you read in 2 Corinthians about Paul saying, I speak as a fool, or Paul saying, I'm ashamed to have to do this again, but I'm going to do it, it's because he has to defend himself and talk about his own accomplishments in order to shut down those the preacher jealousy that was back at Corinth. Here's what he has to say in these three verses, beginning at verse 5. The Apostle Paul, for I suppose I was not a whit behind the very chiefest apostles. Now that's pretty bold, isn't it? I'm going to do this all morning long until we end. I want you to look at the word of God and realize that in today's world, these statements are unacceptable. That would be, he would be accused of being arrogant for making the statement of verse 5. For I suppose I was not a whit behind the very chiefest apostles. Men would say that's arrogance. It isn't arrogance. Paul was very humble. But Paul was defending himself against fools who wanted to ridicule his position and his authority. He went on in verse 6 to say, but though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge... But we have been throughly made manifest among you in all things. And that's all that I'll read for right now. I want you to notice verse 6. Paul admits that he was rude in speech. Paul was not polished and refined in his speech. Paul appeared ignorant, unlearned, unstable in his speech. He was not smooth. He was not urbane, refined, elegant, distinguished, dignified in his delivery. He was rude in speech, but he wasn't in knowledge. That's what the word rude means. I'm, I'm defining it for you and giving those synonyms of it. He appeared ignorant and unlearned like the other apostles did, but there was one, one difference here between Paul and the other apostles. The other apostles sounded ignorant and unlearned because they were ignorant and unlearned. Paul sounded ignorant and unlearned because he chose to sound ignorant and unlearned by not using the eloquence of man's wisdom to move men. Right. Because all he wanted to do was lay out the truth. If you like it, then you're one of God's people. If you don't like it, go to hell. Amen. You say, where's that found in the Bible? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. The Apostle Paul said, every time I preach, I always win. I always win. Those who like what I preach, they are manifesting that they have life. They have eternal life in them, so I am the savour, I am the incense and the aroma before God of life unto life. Because I preach life, and they receive that life, and they show that they have eternal life. But to the other category of my hearers, I also win. Because I am the savour of death unto death. I describe what spiritual death is and they just keep right on living that very same way, showing that they are eternally dead. I am a savor of Christ in both camps. I always win. I just lay out the truth. The apostle Paul never modified his methods to try to get that one camp of those that are dead to accept Christ. That is a false religion of our day where you modify the presentation of the message to move men. I don't want to move men. I want the Lord to move men. Right. The Apostle Paul didn't want to move men, or he would have used more eloquence. He laid the gospel out and let the Spirit of God do his work. If men didn't want to believe it, so be it. Every man shall bear his own burden, and if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. Amen. That was how the Apostle Paul preached. He says, I was rude in speech, but not in knowledge." The Apostle Paul had knowledge that no other man had because God had revealed things to him that had been kept secret since the foundation of the world. Paul had a better grasp on the predestinating purpose of God in Christ than any other man, the book of Ephesians, and he had a better grasp on how the Jews and the Gentiles had been brought together into one body than any other man, the book of Ephesians, and he says that. He was full of knowledge, but he wasn't very smooth in his presentation. Now, the people at Corinth didn't think he was either. Come back a chapter to chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians. Now, Paul admitted he was rude in 11.6 that I just read. Well, let's go back to 10.10 and see what his critics thought at Corinth. 2 Corinthians 10.10. For his letters say they, 1 Corinthians. That's a pretty weighty epistle, don't you say? Don't you think? For his letters say they are weighty and powerful. But his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. See, they had some smooth, refined, elegant preachers that had been to seminary at Corinth. You know the suave guys that have the great suits and always say the right thing and have such a a pretty smile, that have the great bedside manner and are perfect for performing weddings and funerals? You know that kind of a minister? That ain't a minister of God. Amen. Paul wasn't like them. And so in comparison to them, Paul looked contemptible, and his bodily presence was weak. He tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I was with you with tears, with trembling, and in much fear. He was a timid man to get up and preach the gospel, and all that did was manifest the power of God more visibly because of such a man to get up and lay out the truth of the gospel to men. And those that were born again heard that message, and rejoiced in it. Brethren, this sermon's a little different this morning, and I don't even like calling it a sermon. I just like calling teaching you and preaching to you because I want to teach you about the Word of God to remind you of what a minister of God looks like. I have preached plenty to you, and I preach to you every day about living a holy life, every day. If you're disappointed because I didn't give you something else to do today, then go back and listen to the last three-week sermons and read the last 18 proverbs I've written you, and you'll have plenty to do. I'm teaching you this because you need the whole counsel of God, because there's a whole brand of effeminate fairies out there that are calling themselves preachers that are not preachers like God set up his preachers to be. I want you to know how to defend your pastor because I am getting attacked, and I will get attacked, and I don't care about the attacks, and don't think I'm telling you because I'm afraid. I'm not afraid but people who write into our website have never had somebody tell them the truth before. That's right. People that write into our website have never had anybody tell them they're wrong before. That's right. People that read our Proverbs have never read a commentary like that before that tells them they're wrong yeah. and names names. And yes, even this very week, I named a name and lost a man who was practically foaming on the ground, worshiping the truth that I had shown him. And I've got witnesses in here, the Jones family, that read the exchange. It's amazing, incredible. So thankful, blessing the Most High God for having opened the truth to him through some exchanges that I had with him. And then he read something somewhere on the website where I must've named a name. I must've named a name because he he wrote back and he said, thank God I've been saved from your satanic influence. Thank you, Lord, for saving me from your satanic influence now I know you're of the devil. This is the same man who in his previous email had been so thankful for the truth that I had shown him because you named a name and that's proof that you're of the devil. Sweet, isn't it? Sweet. Do you know how ignorant people are today? They don't have the Bible sense that God gave a goose. They, ha- they know nothing about the Bible. Naming names is throughout the Bible. If I don't name names, how are you ever going to get the point of who I'm talking about? If there's somebody that's dangerous for you, should I just speak in vague generalities so you can't figure, figure out who I'm talking about? Or should I tell you someone that's dangerous so that you can avoid them? Amen. And since so you know exactly what I'm talking about, but it doesn't matter. We don't reason through things like that. The Bible names names. Right. These poor little people, though. I don't want you to be poor little people. I want you to be taught in the Word of God. And sometimes we name names. I want you to be able to understand why your pastor does things the way he does. Listen, I don't want to look through the Bible for verses to defend my rudeness. I don't want to be rude to be rude. And by rude, I don't mean going out of my way to be offensive to people because I do the very opposite. Brother Matthew gets all of my correspondence with new people that right into the website. You ask him how nice I try to be. This, this particular individual that I'm just using as an example, and I'm not preaching this just because of this, Event this past week because this has been on the cooker for some time. This individual, we were having such a positive exchange. I said to him, "I wish you lived close to Greenville so that I could immediately meet you for lunch, and look you in the face, and rejoice in God's goodness in showing us the truth." Because that's the kind of response he was giving me. I don't be rude. To, I don't try to be rude in order to be offensive. But listen, when we're when we're dealing with the Word of God, it's going to come out and it's going to be offensive. And I am not going to spend a lot of effort to try to be polished, smooth, sweet, and digestible. I'm just going to lay it out there, whether it's on the website or it's here. And I want you to know that's the way I'm supposed to do it. I'm bound to preach to you the whole counsel of God, so that's why you're getting the two sermons today. But these will not be my favorite sermons. My favorite sermons are sermons like, Thou art altogether lovely from Song of Solomon, chapter 5, about the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't have anyone doubt about me. My favorite psalm is Psalm 45. It's not Psalm 119, verses 97 through 104. But I'll tell you, they go together, and they are not to be divorced from each other. Amen. They go together. That same Lord Jesus Christ, whom I love from Psalm 45, one time sat down and asked for nine pieces of leather to be brought to him, and he asked for a baseball bat. He took the baseball bat, and he tied nine thongs of leather to the end of it. And then he got up from his seat where he had been and asked not to be disturbed while he carefully tied nine thongs of leather into his baseball bat handle. And then he went into the temple and he cleaned out his father's house. amen. Kicking and knocking over tables and chasing them all out of there. Everybody knows the story. Nobody thinks about the implications. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what I've heard all my life? Well, I just don't think that's Christ-like. Who are you? Shut up! Amen. Who are you? I don't think that's Christ-like. I don't care what your thoughts are, and you wouldn't know Jesus Christ if you met him on the street and he introduced himself to you. Amen. Jesus Christ is described in the Bible. And Jesus Christ sat down and made a scourge. It was not an impulsive act. It was a premeditated course of destruction that he was set upon for those that had turned the house of his father the house of prayer into a den of thieves. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if I'm not tough enough, come to me and tell me you're not Christ-like and you'll convict me, but don't come to me and try to turn me into some Girl Scout mother because I don't match up with your style of what you think a preacher ought to be. That is pitiful. You're not Christ-like. Read the Bible and find out about Jesus Christ. Read the Bible and find out what it's going to be like to meet Jesus Christ one moment after death and see what kind of a man you want preparing you for that event. Think about it. I I know one thing. When when, When God suffocated the entire planet in water in the days of Noah, what kind of a minister would you have wanted coming to you before the rain started? God suffocated the entire human race What kind of a minister would you want coming to get your attention? Do you want some little sweet, sappy thing like Benny Hinn? Or do you want a man who's yelling at the top of his lungs trying to get your attention that there's a flood coming and you're going to drown unless you repent? That little white-suited, white-shoed man. Man, that's the kindest thing I'll say all day because nobody could prove that. And that is typical of our generation today. You children, I want all of you children to know that the prophets of God, and the men of God, and the preachers of God have to lay the word of God out there hard. And if some little person says to you, well, that just wasn't nice, or that's too mean, or that's not very smooth, or he's so rough, or he yells so much, I want you to know what the Bible says about God's preachers. Right. This generation wants little ladies you turn the television on, and there's little ladies preaching to you. Have you do, do you people ever do that? No. I, I need it once in a while. I need to remind myself that we live in the perilous times of the last days. See, so you hit channel 16. I think it's the inspirational, some channel on cable. You can hit it and watch the little ladies up there behind the pulpit. Ladies. And now men can't preach anymore without their wives. So you watch Jack Van Empey or some of these other charismatics. They're sitting at a table with their little wife beside them to flatter them all the way through their presentation, and you can't tell which one has the testosterone. You can't figure it out. But that's today's preachers. And the Bible told us it was going to happen. We are living in the fulfillment of Bible prophecy, and I try to lay that out to you from 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 4. We are in the perilous times of the last days. There are feminine creeps that go into houses and lead captive silly women, men that creep in after women. James Dobson, one sentence from that man, and my skin is crawling with fury at the effeminacy of that guy, telling his little sappy stories on the radio because that's what will attract the weak, silly, vulnerable hearts of women. Men would tar and feather him because he's queer the way he tells his sappy little stories. He doesn't sound like Elijah one bit. He doesn't sound like John the Baptist. He doesn't sound like the Apostle Paul. We live in horrible times. Your family is not going to be held together and survive and prosper because you listen to some little sappy story of him playing catch with his daddy. Your family is going to be held together and succeed and prosper Because the word of God is preached. But he can't preach the word of God because if he ever opened his mouth and preached the word of God, he'd be thrown off every single radio station he's on. The fact that he's on a thousand radio stations is proof that he's no minister of God. I hope you are all able to reason through that. And there I go again, naming another name. If he ever told the truth about sodomites and about disobedient children and about mouthy wives, he'd be off the air. He can't tell the truth. He wouldn't know it anyway. He doesn't want to tell the truth. He is a humanistic psychologist. He is not a Bible believer or he would preach the Bible. He's never been called by God to be a minister. He is a PhD in psychology. Since when did God ever ordain one of them for any purpose? We use the word of God, we preach it boldly. Now, I'm not trying to go out of my way this morning to sound more like Elijah than I should. I just want you to be, hear all of these things and know that God's ministers do not look like the world's ministers. I am sorry. When you are in the hospital, I will come and visit you. But I am not going to polish my bedside manner. I will be as nice to you as I am at any time. But that is not my job. Do you know what the average person thinks a minister is? He's to sprinkle their babies. Well, I'm a Baptist, and so I don't have my babies sprinkled. Well, then they have a dedication service at the front of a Baptist church to dedicate the little babies to Jesus. That's just Baptists trying to look like Catholics. That's what most ministers are like. Then that minister is going to be there. if, If the children weren't baptized as infants, he's going to be there to baptize them when they're 10, 8, 12 years old, whenever mommy and daddy say it's time. Then that pastor is going to be there to marry that couple when they get married. Then that pastor is going to be there for the person's funeral or their relatives' funerals. And that's what most people think of as a minister. He dedicated my babies. He married my children. He baptized my children. And he's there to preach my mama, my mama's funeral. How precious. Show me in a Bible where a minister ever preached a funeral. It's not in the Bible. Do you know how a minister would preach a funeral? He would talk about hell. He would talk about righteousness and temperance and judgment to come. Right. Amen. And most people, listen, running the, running the store, the most popular pastor in this county, ate there several times a day in the early, day, early years of our store, and we got to know him quite well, and I'm not going to mention his name because he's worthy of not having his name mentioned because we love the man. But do you know what he spends his whole life doing? Weddings and funerals. A huge church in this county. Huge. Thousands of members. Thousands of members that no longer come. And they all have relatives. And he spends his whole life weddings and funerals. Do you know what he has said to us? I have no time to study the word of God. And he's the most esteemed Baptist pastor in this county. Of the biggest church. Now retired, I'll tell anyone in private, but he's a man worthy of some respect because he is a noble man. At least he came to us and he said, I have no time to study. I am going to retire so that I can study my Bible. Amen. Right? He asked me to preach in his church on Father's Day several years ago. That tells you something about him right there that he's a little unusual that he want to put me in his pulpit. But he saw all the children working there in Schlotzky's Dell and he watched them for a number of years, and that it was at a time where I wasn't ready to preach in anybody's pulpit. So I turned him down just like I turned everyone else down. But uh, there's a man who didn't have any time to study the Bible. You know he spent his whole life doing? Weddings and funerals. Can't find it in the Bible. You know, if a minister's going to show up at, the, at, a funeral, at a wedding and do it like the Lord Jesus Christ did, then he better bring a whole lot to drink. Amen. Because that's all Jesus did at a wedding. I'm not trying to be crude, and I'm not trying to be rude, even though I'm certainly sounding like both. But if you're going to follow the pattern of the Bible, this is what you're going to end up with. Jesus went to a wedding to provide things for them to drink. He didn't go and preach anything, nor do some little ceremony. Now, some of you are going to watch me do a ceremony soon, but that's not what pastors are called to, and I'm going to keep that to a minimum. And if I do it once every few years, so be it. That'll be okay. But to think of a man who's spending his whole life doing weddings and funerals is just horrible. Do you know what the average minister has to do? He gets up on Monday morning and goes down to the hospital. Goes down to the hospital and goes from room to room visiting the sick. Can't find that in the Bible. Do you know what? There are offices in a church for doing that. Deacons do things like that. And church members do things like that. Do you know where pastors are supposed to be instead of sitting in waiting rooms? And I'll do it. I'm not saying I won't do it. Some of you already know I do it. But to think of getting caught up so that that's taking most of your time, God never called a man to do that. He's supposed to be home spending his time and reading the word of God in prayer. You wonder why when he gets in the pulpit, all he's got is a little tiny sermonette because he's been sitting in waiting rooms the whole week. You don't need a pastor. You need a church that loves one another so that the members are there doing that work. You don't need a pastor doing that. It's a total corruption. The pastor becomes like a surrogate grandfather to the family and that is not a pastor. I don't care what warm feelings any of you have for some pastor in your past that was like a surrogate grandfather, God never called him to be a surrogate grandfather. Maybe a surrogate assassin, but not a surrogate grandfather. Because they're to bring the word of God to bear on you, not to sit around comforting you, sitting at your table, just relaxing and chewing the fat. They don't have fat to chew, they want to chew meat, and they want to spit it out and give it to you. They want to teach, 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 Talk, talk, talk about important things. Amen. Right. If they're called of God. <clears throat> God's ministers are often accused of being rude and harsh because of their conduct. And it's true throughout the whole Bible because they were different kinds of men. They were a different kind of men. They were a different breed of men. They were serving the Lord. They weren't trying to serve men. The only popularity contest they wanted to win was, am I popular with the Lord? Am I doing his will? Not whether men approved of them or not. I've already mentioned about Noah. How would you want him to preach before the flood to get your attention? Would you want him to sound like a trumpet or a harp? You know, nowhere in the Bible do I see a minister compared to the sound of a harp. No offense about a harp, Andrea, none. You just keep right on playing the harp. It fits your sex very well. The harp is a gentle little instrument, and David did know how to use it to soothe King Saul. But whenever war was going to be fought, they didn't raise a harp. They raised a trumpet, and a trumpet is an irritating sound. A trumpet blasts through any noise that's being made and cuts through all the fog, and you can hear a trumpet loud and clear. A harp just puts you to sleep. That's what it did to King Saul. But a trumpet arouses men. And so I hope that Noah sounded like a trumpet. He was a preacher for 120 years. He was a preacher of righteousness. You know, Roman Catholicism has infected the church by having those little fairies that walk around with their collars on backwards. I call them fairies justifiably, don't you think? Amen. They don't like women. They like men and boys. Go read their own newspapers that are not available in Greenville, South Carolina. You can get them from other cities in this country like St. Louis, Missouri, where the Catholics publish their own newspapers where they will tell you in their own opinion what percentage of their priests are sodomites and pedophiles. And it's above 50%. By their own admission... It makes, comments, it makes perfectly good sense to me. You take women away from a man, he's got to find something. Just be thankful if they don't have their, their churches on farms. They would find something because it corrupts their nature not to have a woman. That is a doctrine of the devil in First Timothy chapter 4. Now see, that's not very nice. For the Apostle Paul to say that forbidding men to have wives is a doctrine of the devil, that's not very nice. But that's what Paul said in First Timothy chapter 4. It's horrible, and they've affected all of society. Men go to seminary now. They've never worked a real job. You know, I'm thankful that I have worked some real jobs. I have, care, I have mixed mortar and carried blocks for several years for a mason, and it's work like that that's good. You know, these little boys that at 17 decide I want to be a priest, and so they swear off women and go into the Catholic church, and they hang around boys all the time. And they're taught the effeminate religion of Catholicism. Go to a church, go to a Catholic Mass and see who's there. See if it's the men showing up or the women showing up. It's an effeminate religion. And that has infected all of Christianity because they are the mother of abominations of the earth. And it affects what men look for in ministers. Baptist ministers, Baptist men go off to seminary and are taught a refining process so that they have they're polished in the pulpit. Who wants to be polished? Let's polish the word of God so that you can see it clearly. Let me polish your eyes so that you're able to see better. Polish your ears so that you can hear better. Why would I want to be polished, dignified, distinguished, elegant, smooth, urbane, refined, elegant? Those are all effeminate expressions. God's ministers were not like that. Paul said, I was rude in speech, unlearned, not smooth, appearing ignorant. Can you imagine Peter, the fisherman? Peter jumping into a pulpit after being a fisherman all of his life. He was not smooth. What does it say about Peter? Look at Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, when Peter opened his mouth, what did men know about him? He'd never been to seminary. In fact, he hadn't even gone to school. Acts chapter 4 and verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John... And perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. They marveled. And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Amen. Listening to Peter and John preach, what did you know real quick? They did not go to school. They were unlearned and ignorant men. They were fishermen repeating the oral doctrines that they had been given by the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and men that had been to seminary knew that about them. But who did you want to hear? Did you want to hear all those learned men from seminary saying, Jerusalem is going to abide forever and soon have the world under its dominion? Or did you want to listen to that fisherman Peter saying, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and save yourselves from this untoward generation? Who did you want to hear? There were people that followed that Peter. Even though he was unlearned and ignorant, they believed his message. And they were saved from the destruction of Jerusalem because Peter warned them. And even if he warned them, in language that was not grammatically correct, they got the message. And they followed Peter and they were saved. Today we've got Billy Graham, Pope John Paul II. I don't know any difference between the two of them. Robert Shuler, Benny Hinn, Jack Van Impey, James Dobson, Bill Gothard. They're all the same. A feminine feminine counterfeits for Bible preachers. Feminine. Little shrimps going around. Listen, Bill Gothard likes to get up in a stadium. But people will flock to him. People, well, they don't need more because they figured him out and there's enough websites exposing him on the internet that nobody hardly any go, goes to see Bill Gothard anymore. But listen, 20 years ago, Bill Gothard was the rage. He certainly was weak in appearance, just like the Apostle Paul, so I will grant him that similarity to the Apostle Paul, weak in appearance. And there he is down there with his little overhead projector trying to tell people how the tail feathers of an owl have something in them to help you be a good father. Incredible. Mark, you're going to have to ask me afterwards. You're just, you're just totally out of the loop on Christianity in America. But it's okay. It's okay. There's other people in here who aren't, who, who know about that. Talking about little animals. That if you watch a squirrel, the way that it handles its nuts and puts its nuts in the cheeks of its mouth and carries them inside a tree and stores them up there, you can learn great things about how to be a great parent. That's Bill Gothard. He can't preach the Bible. He doesn't know the Bible. He's never heard the Bible preached, and if he preached the Bible, no one would come to one of his con- uh, institutes and in basic basic youth conflicts, seminars. No one would show up if he taught the Bible the way the Bible is supposed to be taught. Jesus said very plainly, anything that is esteemed highly among men is an abomination with God. Paul couldn't draw those kinds of crowds. Why does that little shrimp draw them? Because he's not preaching the truth. Jesus said, because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. In John 8, 45, the truth will never have a large following. It's going to be a very small following. It doesn't matter whether it's Noah. There's a flood coming, and he preached for 120 years, and how many did he get? There were eight in the ark. Jesus Christ preached perfectly for three and a half years. How many did he get? I find 120 dedicated, committed followers of the Lord Jesus Christ in the upper room in Jerusalem in the first chapter of Acts. It's small. It's small. I wish it was larger. I'll do anything I can to help it be larger, but it's going to be small because men do not want the truth anymore. They want fables. Jack Van Impey, Jack Van Empy wants to tell you that he can quote most of the Bible from memory. The only reason you know that is because he tells you about it. He sits there at a table with his pretty little fawning wife who just fawns all over him. Some of you need to watch Jack Van Empy. I used to greatly admire Jack Van Empy. Listen, he had married a beauty queen. He, had, he was converted out of Roman Catholicism. He could quote the Bible. I remember going when I was a teenager to hear Jack Van Empy Pioneer High School, Ann Arbor, Michigan, about 1974. Sometime back there. But now you watch Jack Van Empey? His little wife just fawns all over him. Oh, Jack, you got to watch it to believe it. Oh, Jack, you are so smart. If all these people out there, Jack, would just listen to you, they could be so smart. And she's just batting her 50-year-old eyelids. Oh, Jack, where does that? where is that in the Word of God? Jack's now turned to a pope lover. Jack, who was once converted out of Roman Catholicism, and who preached against Roman Catholicism, now preaches that the pope is the most important man in Christianity. Total reversal of his position. There's no, there's no, no, There should be no confusion in your minds as to why that's happened. He has departed from the proper preaching of God's word. He entertained. He was a nightclub actor before he was converted in playing an accordion. And that man can move around on a stage playing his accordion. And that's what he would do at his presentations. And he'd quote the Bible to let you know that in a sermon, of 30 minutes, he could unloose 100 scripture references perfectly quoted with the verses. And then have his little wife up there to sing. And see, that's not what God called men to do. There isn't entertainment in the gospel. There isn't entertainment unless you love the truth. There isn't sweetness in the gospel unless you love the word of God. Now the man that wrote Psalm 119 and he wrote verse 103, he said that it was sweeter than honey to his taste. But that's because of the character of the man that's hearing it. But the ministers of God had better not try to practice being entertaining because that's not what God has called them to do. You know, they say, they say there's such a thing as pulpit manner. Pulpit manner. The way you're supposed to act in a pulpit to please people. Well, the only pulpit I can find in the Bible, yes. Ezra was standing on top of it. Amen. Now, what would they say about that pulpit manner? If Ezra got on top of his pulpit, that's the only pulpit in the Bible... Ezra's on top of it. Do you know why Ezra's on top of it? Because he wants everybody to be able to see him open the book of the law of God. Because not everyone had the book of the law of God. So in Nehemiah chapter 8, he gets up on the pulpit and he opens the Bible in front of everyone and all the people are there standing. They didn't try to make it comfortable for them with cushioned chairs like you have. They didn't have chairs at all. They stood there and they stood from morning until noonday. And they had asked for this service and he read in the word of God distinctly and gave the sense. Amen. That was his preaching. He read the Bible distinctly and gave the sense of the words. And that was preaching. There was no instrumental music. There was no special numbers. There was nothing like that. And the people stood there for three hours and loved every minute of it while he read in the word of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused the people to understand. That is preaching. That is preaching that is pulpit manner. It's not a noise. It's not entertaining. It's not an art form. Every different denomination has its own little art form of what preaching ought to be. And what preaching is is public teaching of the word of God. To open the word of God and to teach it. To show what the Bible has to say on a particular subject. Paul was a learned man. You know, in Acts chapter 17, when he's with the philosophers on Mars Hill, he can quote from a minor Greek poet. Paul was learned. In Titus chapter 1, he quoted from a Cretan prophet. Paul was learned, but he never used that learning. He said, I I gave up all of that stuff because I would never want to move one man to follow Jesus Christ by my performance, by my presentation of the truth. I want them following the truth and it only by the power of God. That's what Paul taught about preaching. You know, some of you read yesterday about Elijah last night. Let's go back to 2 Kings chapter 1 and take a peek at Elijah very quickly. 2 Kings chapter 1. Now, Elijah didn't wear a fine suit. Elijah wore a hairy garment where he he didn't wear linen. He didn't wear soft raiment. He didn't even wear leather. He wore a hairy overcoat, and around it was strapped a piece of leather in his loins. He was a hairy man, and John the Baptist dressed just like him because John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So when we look at Elijah, we're looking at John the Baptist. When we look at John the Baptist, we're looking at Elijah. John the Baptist, where did he live? In a seminary? In a monastery? Or out in the wilderness beside the Jordan River? He was a wild man. He ate locusts and wild honey. Look at 2 Kings 1. Ahijah is on his deathbed, and he sends to Baal to find out if he's going to recover or not. And while these messengers are running to to ask Baal whether King Ahijah of Israel is going to recover or not, they run into this man. And so the messengers come back to the king. I'm trying to cut down the amount of reading I'm going to give you. Verse 6. The messengers come back to the king, and they said unto him, There came a man up to meet us and said unto us, Go, turn again unto the king that sent you and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Is it not because there is not a God in Israel that thou sendest to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore thou shalt not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. That is the bedside manner of Elijah. He doesn't even show up He just sends a messenger, you're gonna die in that bed, because you didn't put the Lord God of Israel first in your life. Amen. Verse 7: the king is speaking. He said unto them, What manner of man was he which came up to meet you and told you these words? And they answered him, He was an hairy man and girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. And he that is the king said, Is Elijah the Tishbite? Elijah the Tishbite. See, Elijah didn't wear that outfit one day. Elijah wore that outfit every day. Elijah wore that outfit every day so that the king knew exactly who it was when these messengers described this hairy outer garment with a strap of leather around his loins, tying it together. And look at his bedside manner. You go back and you tell that king because he wants to inquire of Baal He is not coming off of that bed. He shall surely die. That is the bedside manner of a man of God with a sinner. So the king sends out 50 men with their captain. Go get that prophet and bring him to me. So the prophet's sitting on a little hill. The captain comes out with his 50 men and says, man of God, come down here because I'm going to take you to the king. Elijah said, if I'm a man of God, then let fire fall from heaven and burn up you and your 50. This is right here. This is Bible story time. And fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his 50. So the king, now this is pretty dumb, isn't it? The king sends another 50. And That captain's pretty dumb too, isn't he? He comes out there and he says, man of God, come down, because I'm going to take you to the king. And Elijah said, if I'm a man of God, then let fire fall from heaven and burn you and your 50 up. And fire fell from heaven and burned up now 102 men. Oh, man of God, have mercy on me, and may my life be precious in your sight. I have watched 102 men come out here and get burned up. Will you please have mercy on me and come down? Now, Elijah said, okay. And the old man got up and came down the hill and went with that man to the king, but that king did not come off his bed. He surely died. You say, well, that's just an exception. You think that's an exception for the life of Elijah? You haven't read the rest of the Bible about Elijah. He's the one that took the prophets of Baal, mocked and made fun of them. Made fun of another man's religion. We ought to see that because, oh, I just get told that it's not nice to make fun of another man's religion. <laughs> First Kings 18. Whenever you read those proverbs and it makes fun of somebody's religion, you can count on a little bit of feedback. First Kings 18. He's gonna have a revival. And a revival wasn't a bunch of special music. Do you know how many revivals are based on special music? He didn't have special music. He said, build me an altar and flood it with water and get all the prophets of Baal together. And there were 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the groves for 950 prophets against one little man of God. And he lets them go first. They each have their altar. Whichever God responds by fire must be the true God. So he lets them go first. That's fair enough, isn't it? Let them go first. And they're slashing each other and they're crying out and screaming for Baal to send fire down from heaven and burn up the sacrifice on their altar. Verse 27 of 1 Kings 18. It came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them. Now, brethren, this is a man of God. This is a great man of God. This is not Jonah, where we have to wonder if what he was doing was right or not. This is Elijah. This is the man that was the predecessor of John the Baptist. This is the man who gave an example of how to be a pastor and a preacher and a teacher to the first Baptist. This is Elijah. It came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is talking or he is pursuing or he is in a journey. Or peradventure he sleepeth and must be awakened. Elijah made fun of their religion, and it was the accepted, popular religion. It was the religion of the king and queen of Israel at that time, Ahab and Jezebel. It was what most of the nation followed, the religion of Baal. It was popular, it was acceptable, it was politically correct to be a Baal worshiper, and here comes this man of God, not politically correct, not respectful, and makes fun of their false religion. That is a man of God. And John the Baptist wasn't any different. You know, they take off slashing themselves and doesn't do any good. And what does Elijah do when he's all done with this worship service? What's the invitation? The invitation is don't let a single one of them escape. I want them down at the brook Kishon, and he killed all 950 of them. Now, how's that for a pulpit manner? How's that for an invitation? Come over to Matthew chapter 3, and let's see if John the Baptist was anything like him. Was John the Baptist afraid of Herod? Could you tell that Elijah wasn't afraid of Ahijah, King Ahijah of Israel? Could you tell that? Was John the Baptist afraid of Herod? What did he tell Herod he was doing wrong? It is not right for you to have your brother's wife. His brother's name was Philip. Philip's wife was Herodias. I may have got that confused right then. I'm not, I can't remember what, it, what her name was. I know there was a Herodias involved. that may have been the daughter. It doesn't matter. You know the story. Herod, uh, John the Baptist was not afraid to tell Herod that he was wrong in having that woman that wasn't rightfully his. And did it cost him? It cost him his life. Was he afraid? Did he apologize? Did he repent for saying that? No. Let's look at Matthew chapter 3 and see John the Baptist, verse 7. Here he is in action. It tells us about him in verse 4. He had his raiment of camel's hair. See, he wore a garment, a hairy, hairy garment. Camel camel skin that hadn't been cured to leather, except on the inside. It had all the hair on the outside. He was wrapped in that, and he had a leather girdle, just like Elijah, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. That is a wild man living in the wilderness, eating grasshoppers and honey. That was his diet. Verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O oh, generation of vipers. Now that's not nice. That is not nice to say things like that. Oh, generation of vipers. And who's he speaking to? He's speaking to the religious leaders of his day. And do you know what? These were the best Bible believers in the whole nation. The Apostle Paul said this group of people, the Pharisees, were the straightest sect of the Jews' religion. These were the fundamentalists. These are the ones that graduated from Bob Jones University. These are the fundamentalists of John the Baptist's generation. And look what he calls them. As soon as he sees them, he doesn't have a dialogue. Listen to some of the words that I've heard Can't we have a dialogue? Can't we agree to disagree? Can't we all just get along together? Can't you at least just sit down and talk to them, John? John, don't you think if you had a little conference, you might be able to find some things that you agreed upon? I've heard this stuff all my life. Can we have a dialogue? Well, here's the dialogue, it's in one direction. O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance, And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Amen. And he keeps right on going, and now also the ax is laid to the root of the tree. God is going to burn you up. You Pharisees, show me some righteousness. Show me some works that would justify a baptism. You unrepentant men living in sin, you are a generation of vipers and God is coming to burn you up. That is how the first Baptist preacher dealt with visitors to his assembly. Amen. I don't do that. I'm not that bad. I'm bad, but I'm not that bad. I do treat visitors nicer than that. And the point is not for you to be just thinking about your pastor, but I want you to realize this is the word of God this is the word of God and this is a godly man facing hypocrites that are known to be hypocrites to anybody with two eyes. When they come into his assembly, he went right after them. That was John the Baptist. Amen. What do you think about Elihu? Listen, I, do you know how many, do you know how long I could go on this message? Do you know how many examples I have? A couple hundred. I've given you about three couple hundred. It'll be on the internet, and you can have the whole outline and look at it. Remember last week about Ezekiel? What did Ezekiel's sermon sound like? Was that kind of rude to get up and talk about a woman in those kind of lewd and lascivious terms that Ezekiel 16 described and Ezekiel 23 described? Can you, um, that was a man's sermon. That was a man's message to, to Judah. Son of man, my preacher, Ezekiel, caused Jerusalem to know her abominations. You get down as graphic and as gross as you possibly can so that Judah will understand that when she turns away from me and worships another God, this is how I perceive it. Get down and dirty. And he did. And if you read those chapters carefully, he got down and dirty. And people would say that kind of language isn't appropriate in the pulpit. What? What? Why isn't it? Oh, you're holier than the Lord? You got a problem. That's Ezekiel the prophet. How about poor Isaiah? How long did he have to wander around Israel naked? Isaiah the prophet, how long? Three years. He had to wander around Israel naked as part of an object lesson to that nation. Poor Hosea, he had to marry a prostitute, then he had to marry an adulteress as an object lesson to Israel. Poor Ezekiel. God came to him and said, I want you to bake some cakes. I want you to bake some barley cakes, and I want you to cook them on your side. You got to lay on your side for, for 390 days, but while you're laying there on your side for 390 days, I want you to work up some barley cakes, and I want you to bake them over human dung. I want you to get some dung that came out of a man and use that for the fuel to bake these barley cakes. Oh, and Ezekiel said, Lord God, I've never let anything so profane come near my mouth please don't ask me to do that. And the Lord said to Ezekiel, okay, I'll let you use cow dung. And so he baked barley cakes because he was, you know what he was doing? He was telling, he was telling Judah, this is what's going to happen to you when God's judgment falls on this nation. You're going to be eating stuff like this in a land that is not yours because I've rejected you. Now that's the pulpit manner of Ezekiel. You read through the Psalms, you see David talking about wicked men, that they make noises like dogs going around belching. Now that's not a nice word to use in the pulpit. Why is, why is David so rude? The sweet psalmist of Israel. The sweet psalmist of Israel has a psalm in, verse, in chapter 68 in Psalm 137 where he says that how happy are they going to be that get to dash your children against the stones. Psalm 137. How does that come out of the mouth of the sweet psalmist of Israel? Because it was Babylon, the enemies of Israel. How happy they are going to be that can take your baby children and dash them against the stones. Psalm 68, how happy we're going to be to dip our feet in the blood of our enemies and our dogs to lick up the same. Psalm 68, that's the sweet psalmist of Israel. On and on we could go with many, many examples. How Matthew 23, Jesus calls the Pharisees. These are the religious leaders of his day. Let's get, it, let's get that down. These are other preachers. Jesus called other preachers, hypocrites, blind guides, fools, serpents, vipers, in Matthew chapter 23, as he tore their religion and their lives apart. That was the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're going to talk about a minister being Christ-like, make sure it's the Christ of the Bible, not an effeminate figment of your imagination. Amen. Right. You meet a very feminine man, and he's so sweet and he's so nice. I have heard people say he is so Christ-like. Christ-like is not effeminate and nice. Christ-like is hating sin and loving righteousness. It makes up a scourge and drives thieves out of the temple, and it talks to religious leaders that way. Don't tell me you know anything about Christ unless you're going to quote verses describing the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, he could lay on the bosom of John at supper, but that's because John was a lover of righteousness and a hater of iniquity. But whenever he met men that had sin in their lives or when he was preaching, he let go both barrels. You read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Do you know what it said when it gets to the end? That the people were comforted with such a gentle message. The people were astonished. For he taught them as one having authority and not like the scribes who were effeminate. Because he just kept going from point to point to point. The Pharisees are wrong. The Pharisees are wrong. The Pharisees are wrong. And showing what the truth was if they wanted to please God in their lives. In Matthew 23, the Lord Jesus Christ, he writes to a church in Revelation chapter 3, and he says, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. Now, that's not very polite. I need you to think, of is that polite? That is not polite language. And he tells them, just because you've lost your first love, he is so egotistically obsessed and possessive of them that he says, because you've lost your first love, I'm going to take your candlestick away. That's the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to a church. Let's just keep right on going in there. He names a woman by name, doesn't he? He names a prophetess by name. Her name was Jezebel. And he says, I'm going to throw her and her children, those that are following her into a bed, and kill them. That's how he spoke to his churches. What did he have coming out of his mouth? The sweet appearance of a harp, a flute, or a two-edged sword? What did Jesus Christ have coming out of his mouth? A two-edged sword. Did he hold a sweet scepter in his hand, a loaf of bread, a glass of milk, or did he have an iron rod in his hand? Amen. And he was breaking the nations in pieces. There is, a, there is much place for love and affection and tenderness between a pastor and his people, as the Apostle Paul had for the Thessalonians. But when it comes time to name sin, name sinners, and to warn them of judgment that's coming, there isn't time for being effeminate and nice. The, Paul, treat, the, Paul treated the Thessalonians like a nurse treats her children, but that's because they were so obedient. Go read First and Second Thessalonians. We've already been through those two books. Yep. Ever read Isaiah 44 verses 9 through 20 where the prophet Isaiah just makes fun of those who worship a totem pole Amen. or any piece of wood? Where he mocks for all of those verses, taking a, a tree, using a third of it to cook your food, using a third of it to heat your body, and using the other third to fall down before it and call it a God. He just makes fun of them and says they have a lie in their right hand and they cannot deliver themselves. David does the same thing over in Psalm 135, 115, a couple other places, where he says, Idols have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. Mouths have they, but they cannot speak. They have feet, but they've got to be carried around wherever they go. And everyone that worships them is just like them, as dumb as a stone. Amen. Because that is the truth. Do you know how much I love this Bible? And I love what I'm telling you this morning because for the first time, when we have the Bible and when we have a man who believes the Bible, we get to hear clear, unadulterated truth for the first time in our lives. You watch one of our politicians get interviewed and all the vague generalities they use to avoid saying anything and taking a position on any subject because they are not men of truth. Men of truth want to put the truth on the table where you can pick it up and look at it and love it. They want to get it out there plain and they want to say it so plain, there is no mistaking what they are saying. And that's how it ought to be said. The Apostle Paul is the pattern for all Gentile preachers because he is the great apostle to the Gentiles. I read in Acts chapter 20 that he was this rude. He preached all night long. He had no regard for the clock, and though he saw a man nodding off who was sitting in a dangerous window seat, the man fell out to the street below and was taken up for dead. But the Apostle Paul revived him from the dead and preached till daybreak. Now that is rude. That's rude. Paul was hauled into court and he told the man in court who happened to be the high priest, you whited wall. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. That's the apostle Paul, our sweet little brother Paul. He sure did. And that man in court deserved that. Paul called Christ's enemies dogs. He called them the concision. Now that was a really nasty term. Philippians chapter three, when you call Jewish preachers the concision, you are really getting down and dirty. See, Jews Jews revel in the fact that they're circumcised. That means they had cutting in a circle. All of you understand what I'm talking about, taking the foreskin off a man. And the Jews reveled in that because they knew that that was the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham in the Old Testament. When Paul's dealing with those Jews and wanting to ridicule them in Philippians chapter three, He calls them the concision, the body mutilators, the ones with cuttings. He doesn't even give them the honor of calling it circumcision. He calls them the concision and calls them dogs in the same place. Paul said all of his past religious experiences in the religion of the Jews was as good as dung. You can translate to to terminology that would be used today since that word is no longer used. That's what the Apostle Paul would say about all of his religious upbringing within the Jews' religion. Paul made fun of the science of his day as vain babblings, 1 Timothy chapter 6. He talked about vain janglings. He talked about wives' tales. Do you know where the expression wives' tales come from? It comes from your brother, 1 Timothy chapter 4, the apostle to the Gentiles. 1 Timothy chapter 4, I need to read in the word of God distinctly and give the sense here. First Timothy four, look at verse seven. He's telling Timothy, but refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. And when he uses verses like this, he's not referring to the comics in the newspaper, he's referring to other preachers and other teachers. He has to continually warn about other teachers. Look at what he says about them, these other teachers in verse 6 of chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6. From which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling. Now that is not a nice expression for the preaching of other ministers. Vain jangling. Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. Now that's not nice to say that these other teachers don't even know what they're talking about. Chapter 6. Chapter 6 and verse 3. If any man teach otherwise, Timothy, if any man teaches anything different than what I've taught you, and he consents not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself. These are other ministers. Now that's a three-verse sentence, and you've got to read through that to fully appreciate just how rough Paul was on other ministers. Timothy, if they don't preach it just the way we do, they don't know what they're talking about. They are arrogant men. They don't have any truth. And they think that gain is godliness. Because they've got a bigger following than we've got, they think that's the truth. From such, withdraw thyself. They don't know what they're talking about. They're destitute of the truth. The Apostle Paul would use hearsay from a family when he wrote the church at Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He said, "...it's been told me by the household of Chloe that some of you in here have divisions and are having preacher factions." He used hearsay to unload on that church for the division and strife that was among them. Would he name names? I've already mentioned today 2 Timothy chapter 4 has Alexander the coppersmith and it has Demas. He said this about Demas. Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Well now how did he know that? Can you judge another man's heart? That isn't nice to judge another man's heart. It's easy to judge another man's heart. His heart is visible in his life. And so Paul judged that man's heart by name and the whole wide world knew that Demas was a lover of this world. He was a spiritual adulterer. How about 1 Timothy chapter 1? I think you're still there. Look at the last, no you're not, you went to chapter 6. Come back to chapter 1, look at verse 19. Does Paul name names? 1 Timothy 1.19, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. There's a couple false teachers named by name, and Paul said what he's done about them. In the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's turned them over to Satan to teach them not to blaspheme. The whole point What does a godly minister look like? He names sin, and he names sinners. It didn't matter whether Paul was writing a minister friend, he would name other ministers. It didn't matter whether Paul was before Festus, the governor, he would reason of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. And he reasoned about it in such a way that that man sat there and trembled. That is how ministers ought to preach. It is not a minister's job to make you feel good. It is not a minister's job to sing you a pretty song. It is not his job to present it in such a way that you leave feeling warm and fuzzy. He better leave you something to go and do. He better leave you something to fear. He better present God as God truly is, the great and dreadful God. He better teach you how to worship with reverence and godly fear. This is the New Testament. This is what a minister ought to look like. He dressed Peter down in front of all the Galatians and told the whole world that Peter had blown it again in Galatians chapter 2 for his hypocrisy in dealing with the Jews. The apostle Paul told ministers, don't even entertain questions that are unlearned and foolish. When somebody comes to you asking a question, if you detect that they're a fool or a scorner, ignore them. They're not worth your time. Well, that's not very nice. That's not how you win friends and influence people. You should have time for everyone. Oh, no, not in the Bible. Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior, would say, Don't cast your pearls before swine. Well, now that's not a nice word to use about people. I mean, aren't we all special? Didn't God make all of us? Don't cast your pearls before swine. Those aren't Jonathan Crosby's words, those are the words of the Son of God. And don't give that which is holy to dogs. They don't deserve the truth. Cut them off. Shut up a scorner. Leave them alone. Let them rot. Jesus was told once by his disciples, don't you know that the Pharisees were offended by what you said? Jesus said, so let them be offended. They're the blind leaders of the blind. Let them and all those that are following them fall into the ditch. I didn't make that up. That is what the Bible teaches about Jesus Christ. Why why would Jesus be so harsh? Because brethren, we are dealing with life and death and we are dealing with eternity, and we are dealing with meeting our Creator God. It is no time for polite, pretty language. It is time for yelling a clarion call of warning to God's people to obey. And so Jesus did, and so did Paul. The gospel is offensive to this world. Anybody of this world doesn't want to hear this truth. They would be highly offended, and they would leave, and we could be very thankful There are people that come in here, and sometimes you know that what is preached, which I don't plan, I don't try to be offensive, but you know what is preached is offensive to them. Sometimes they stay and survive it. Like this sister right over here. She stayed and survived. There are others that come in, and they can't handle it. They go right out the back door. And we're thankful for it. We're thankful. God arranges what they hear when they come. He has arranged their entire lives to have a set of prejudices when they get in here that when they hear something from me, they don't like it. And they are, they are just going to sit in, as pontiffs and judge me and walk out of here and say, well, I don't believe that. Fantastic. Thank you, Lord, for saving us from such people. Amen. It doesn't matter how small we are as long as everyone here loves the truth of the gospel. Amen. We don't want any of them. Fair speeches are what whores use. Fair speeches are what orators use. You know, one testified against the Apostle Paul in the Bible. Fair speeches are what false teachers use in the Bible, says it throughout the Bible. Fair fair words and good speeches. Where are those kind of words used in the Bible? Always of a false teacher. Good words and fair speeches, always about a false teacher. Never about a man preaching the truth. Because it's hard words. You know, my word is like a hammer. My word is like a fire, Jeremiah 23. It breaks the rock in pieces. And we need to be broken when we come before the word of God. There's 168 hours in a week. I have a little opportunity with you. It's not time to entertain you with good words and fair speeches. It's time to warn you of the judgment that's coming. And brethren, There's always going to be something in every sermon you don't like. This is the beauty of the Lord's God providential arrangement, using a donkey, an ass, as your pastor. What that means is, every single time I preach, I'm going to say something offensive. I'm going to use ain't for those that really dig the English language. I'm going to use ain't sometime, and that's going to offend them. I'm going to use the word ass, And someone's going to say, my mama wouldn't let me say ass when I was growing up, and that doesn't belong in the pulpit. There's always going to be a word to offend. Do you know why there's always going to be a word to offend? So that God can show that you are a scorner and that he's going to crush you. Isaiah 29 and verse 20. Isaiah 29 and verse 20. No man can get up here for an hour and run hard and not say something that's not offensive it's it, it just happens right. you try it sometime and i'll sit down there and get offended cuz i can do it too i'll get one hour go wide open on the word of god and see if i can't find something wrong with something you said i remember someone listening to a sermon they were just enjoying this is years ago all the way through it just enjoying it and i said paul was a punk Paul was a punk. I didn't mean punk in the sense that it was used today. I just meant a small, little, insignificant guy that, didn't, that wasn't very impressive in his, in his appearance. Oh, boy, as soon as they heard that, man, shut that thing off. I can't listen to him. I said something recently in this church. We had visitors. Oh, I, I heard all about it. I heard, after I heard that one word, I couldn't hear a single thing you said after that. I wrote back, and I apologized, and I said, I'm sorry I used that word. I was going wide open. Here's what I meant by that word. Here's what all my people knew by that word. I'm sorry you didn't understand that word, and I'm really sorry because of Isaiah 29, 20, and 21 and what it says about you. Amen. I did it very kindly. Look at what this says, Isaiah 29:20. 20, For the terrible one is brought to naught, God is going to make this terrible kind of person nothing. And the scorner is consumed, and all that watch for iniquity are cut off. Well, let's get more specific. Isaiah is going to define what this terrible kind of person is. That make a man an offender for a word, and lay a snare for him that reproveth in the gate, and turn aside the just for a thing of naught. They will turn aside the just for nothing. They will keep a man of the pulpit for nothing. They don't want to listen to a man for nothing, and they'll make him an offender for a word, a single word. Do you know how many words come out of my mouth in a Sunday? Do you know what what noises I make all the way home on Sunday afternoon and Sunday evening? And what noises I make in bed on Sunday night? It's groans. But do you know what? I just thank the Lord God because I do the very best I can, and I'm glad that he lets things out that even I wish I could pull back. Because if you make me an offender for a word, you are showing your character. Your heart is as black as coal. Amen. <coughs> you have a devil inside you. Amen. That you would reject a message from a mere sinner that never wanted this job in the first place because I said one word that you didn't like. Your heart is black. Amen. Because that is going to happen. The Bible tells me in a multitude of words there wanteth not sin. There's nobody in here that hears that verse as much as I do. But I try to keep my mouth from sinning when I'm up here. I just want to preach the Bible as plainly as I can, and I really don't even like today's sermon. But I just had to get it out there and remind you what God's ministers are like. They don't go around trying to make everyone happy. They don't go around trying to flatter everyone and make them feel warm and comfortable. They want to lay the word of God out just the way it is. Maybe I've said something about Jesus you think is disrespectful to him. You don't know the Jesus of the Bible, and I'm sorry you haven't met him yet but I'll be happy to show you the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible. Amen. His picture that he wants you to have of him right now is not that long-haired, effeminate woman standing at a wooden door in a garden, knocking on it like he's so weak that if you didn't open it, he's going to fall down. That is not the Lord Jesus Christ. The, you know, There's too many Christians that have that picture on their walls. You know what I'm, picture I'm talking about? Everybody, does everybody know that picture I'm talking about? The long-haired hippie standing in some garden with bushes all around, and there's an oval wooden door, and he's knocking on it, begging for entrance. Do you know that is 180 degrees different than the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible? The Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says this I have the keys of David. I open, and no man shuts, and I shut, and no man opens. Now, that is the Lord Jesus Christ that I can tell young men about in prison and get them excited because they want someone that they can follow and who will protect them and who is worthy of living for. And that Jesus Christ is. He is sitting on a white horse right now. There is coming out of his mouth a two-edged sword. His eyes are as a flame of fire, and he is in a vesture dipped in blood, and his horse is trotting triumphantly at the front of a triumphant army. That is not a feather coming out of his mouth. That is a two-edged sword. That Lord Jesus Christ is the Jesus Christ of the Bible. And that is the one that's coming. It tells us in in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he will be revealed in flaming fire from heaven with his angels to judge all those that have not obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's coming. If you think that Sweet talking can help evangelism. You don't know the human heart. The rich man in hell begged Abraham to send Lazarus back from the dead to tell his brothers that they shouldn't come to this horrible place. Abraham said, son, they get to hear the prophets read every Sunday, every Saturday, for those poor Jews. Isn't that good enough? Father Abraham, my brothers don't like to go to church. And hear preaching. But if one went back to them from the dead, they wouldn't come here. Abraham said, Son, you are wrong. If they will not hear the preaching of the word of God, they will not be changed and converted, even if one were to go back to them from the dead. And that's what we believe. But we lay the truth out, the Apostle Paul said, We make it manifest, and it's up to each man to hear it or to reject it. You know, there's, a, there's trite sayings that might be good at home for your children with their siblings, but that don't apply to the pulpit. If you can't say something nice about someone, then don't say anything at all. That might work at the dinner table, but it doesn't work for the pulpit. Honey will attract more flies than vinegar. As long as I've been in the ministry, I've never wanted to attract flies. I don't know what that one means. The people that I've found that really love God, they love the vinegar. You know, that's why some of you women, I believe, are are cousins to jail. If you were in a tent with Sisera, you'd pick up a tent stake and drive it through his head, just like the ones in the Bible. You love sound doctrine. The ones that love sound doctrine, they're the righteous ones. They love the truth of God's word. They're not all offended, because once in a while I say something a little harsh. We don't try to be rude or crude. We don't try to create an image, and I certainly don't want to create one. I'll be made all things to all men that I might by all means save some if there's any potential of saving them. 1 Corinthians 9.22, I will. I will do anything. Those of you who know how I deal with your children, I love your children, I want to do anything I can to help them. I will try to serve anyone that I can. But when it comes time to preach the word of God, when it comes time to give a commentary on a verse of Proverbs, when it comes time to answer questions, we or I, if I am left alone, I will answer them plainly, and I will answer them with the Bible, and I don't care if six billion people unite against me, I know that there is a God in heaven, and he wrote this book, and this book is all that I need. And Psalm 119, verses 97 through 104 are the foundation for my ministry. I have more understanding than all my teachers, I understand more than the ancients, and I'm wiser than all my enemies, because I have meditate and keep the commandments of God and may the Lord help me keep them even better. A sign of our perilous times are effeminate, degenerate preachers. Do not let your children be deceived. Do not let them be comforted by a Santa Claus type persona of a minister who's like a surrogate grandfather. The men they want is an Elijah, is a John the Baptist, is a Paul who will let it all hang out and tell them what the Lord God expects out of their lives so that they can please him. And may the Lord bless us to have that kind of a ministry here. Pray for me that I will do it just the way the Lord wants me to do it, that I won't be too hard, that I won't be too soft, and that I'll teach the things that you need to hear. And I'm sorry if this morning has disappointed you, but it's something you need to be reminded of, what Jesus Christ and his apostles and his prophets all looked like. They all look like each other and they look very different from this world. And it was because they were out to save us from the judgment that's coming. I want to tell you something. And I've said this before, and I don't know how else to say it. One second after you die, you will wish that I had been a better pastor. And when you use the word better, you will wish I had been ruder and cruder and harder to have gotten more of your attention. Because one second of seeing the Lord Jesus Christ and you will wish that I had totally arrested your lives and got every bit of sin out of them because we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of our lives and Paul followed that sentence up with this one knowing therefore the terror of the Lord we persuade men that is why the message is hard because the consequences are severe But to all those that love righteousness, I love you, and I will burn myself out for you. I will do anything to help you in your walk of righteousness. And the Lord Jesus Christ will meet us with open arms. There is no vengeance for his saints. He will say, get your white horse and fall in behind me. Let's trample upon the wicked and the devil, and you can spend eternity with me in my pavilion. May the Lord Jesus Christ be praised. (coughs)